Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Romans chapter 14, Romans 14, starting in verse 1, and we're going to be going all the way until verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible under a chair or in the pew back in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. We, we believe that this is God's Word spoken to us, and we want to have it before us uh, and just really zero in on what God has for us. And so we're going to be in Romans chapter 14. Romans is about three-quarters of the way through the Bible. It's after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. And you're looking for a big 14 and we're just going to be in the first 12 verses. So you're in Romans 14, but I want to kind of hearken back to Matthew 18, 21 to 35, because there Jesus tells us a parable that I want to kind of bring into the modern day that I think would really set us up for what we're going to see in Romans 14 today. So I want you to imagine for a moment a farmer who has 50 acres of apple trees, Every day he goes out and he prunes the trees, he tends to the trees, he sprays forever uh, insects or anything that might damage the trees. Every day he wakes up, he works hard, and then he goes to sleep hoping there will be a harvest. And yet, unfortunately, this year there is a drought. The only thing that the farmer can rely upon to, to gain water is water from the sky. And without water uh, from rain, uh, he has nothing to water his crop. And so, unfortunately, his crop fails. He's devastated. How will he pay his bills? And so he goes to the bank, and as he talks to the loan officer, he is able to secure a couple hundred thousand dollars in loans to be able to pay his bills and have enough money for the next year. And so the next year he gets up every day, he works hard, prunes the trees, takes care of them. And then at the end of the year, when harvest is, uh, when it's getting closer to harvest, there's no rain again. And the drought causes his crops to fail once more. Now, two years in a row, he has absolutely no money to pay his bills. And so what he does is he goes back back to the bank and he pleads his case again and they decide to give him more money and, and he goes on the next year hoping that maybe this is the year that he'll finally get an abundant crop to be able to pay back his loans only to be in the third year of drought. And it continues year after year after year until the point that farmer is finally millions of dollars in debts. And one day he's out in the field tending to his trees, just praying and hoping that there might be rain this year so he can finally have a crop and, and maybe pay back the bank. And as he's doing so, he sees this black SUV drive down the, uh, the roadway to his orchard. And as he, uh, as he looks, a man gets out dressed in a black dress suit with a white shirt. And as he gets out, he begins to talk to the man and tell him, I'm the president of the bank. And today, your loan is due. Now, how would you feel in that moment? Millions of dollars in debt, no way uh, of paying that off, no money to your name, no idea what you're going to do. My guess is you would cry, you would feel distressed, you'd feel like the weight of the world is 
on your shoulders and you would try to plead your case. Now imagine that moment if you began to plead your case and the, and the bank uh, president said, give me a second, let me try to figure some things out, make a few phone calls, and I'll come back to you. And so he goes back to his car, about five minutes later he comes back and he says, guess what, I've got something for you. Your debt's paid, it's covered, you owe us nothing, you're good. Now how would you feel in that moment? Relieved, right? Excited. Wow, it's taking, like how in the world did I go from millions of dollars in debt to, it's just gone. Now fast forward, fast forward a couple months. This farmer, his wife comes to him and says, hey, uh, I need you to go to Aldi and pick up some bread and some eggs and some other things. And so he goes to Aldi and he gets the cart out. And if you've ever been there, you know, you've got to put a quarter in the cart. And so just about the time he reaches the cart, he looks and he sees his friend right there. And they start chatting, they kind of catch up, and, and his friend is about to get a cart, so he's like, oh man, I forgot a quarter, can I, can I borrow a quarter? Okay, here you go, borrows a quarter, and the, and the two men go into the store, shop, get all that they need, and as the farmer begins to make his way to the, his car, he sees his friend putting the shopping cart back in the, the line of carts, put the key back in, taking the quarter out and putting it in his pocket, only to go into his car and begin to drive off. And the farmer goes berserk. He runs after the car. He starts pounding on the hood as his friend drives off. And he calls the cops saying, this man stole from me. He took a quarter from me. He needs to give it back. What's wrong with that picture? The man was forgiven millions. He had this massive debt that in one moment was wiped away entirely, and he is haggling over 25 cents. And I wonder how often that is us. That if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have this massive debt that has been wiped clean. And what ends up happening is when we begin to interact with one another, we begin to haggle and argue over secondary matters. We begin to be judgmental over issues that have no eternal bearing whatsoever. We begin to make mountains out of molehills. And this morning, Paul's going to challenge us with that. He's going to challenge that if you and I have been transformed by the power and the grace of Jesus Christ, that should change the way in which we look at other people, no longer walking around with an air of superiority, with a judgmentalism to push others down, but recognize that apart from the grace of God, we are the ones who are judged. And to realize that there is a future day coming in which all of us will stand before Jesus and we will either plead the blood of Jesus or we will have to bear the weight and the consequence for our sin. But none of us can bear that on our own. And so Paul's going to lift our eyes this morning and help us to look at that final judgment and say because of that we ought to live today differently. In fact, what he's going to tell us is this, that God's final judgment 
must lead us to lay down our fallible judgments. That if we've been changed by the cross of Christ, by the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, we know there's a final judgment. And because of that, we're going to lay down our fallible, our mistake-ridden, sin-filled, easily wronged ways. And instead, we're going to run and trust in the judgment of Christ. And so with that, Let's go ahead and read our passage this morning. And as we do, would you stand with me as we read our passage this morning from Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Romans 14, starting in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he'll be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one, one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live... We live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live says the Lord. Every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. So Paul is writing this letter to the church at Rome because he desires to partner with them. He wants to see the gospel spread to new areas where churches can be started and people can come to know Jesus Christ. This is why we as a church desire to be a family and and be servants of King Jesus, but also be missionaries. Where we're planting movements and we're seeing new churches across our valley and across the world begin. But to do that, we have to be on the same page. To do that, we have to have the same definitions, we have to have the same clear, clear gospel understanding to be able to start these churches, and Paul is wanting to be on the same page with this church, and so for 11 chapters, he just explains what he means by grace, what he means by mercy, what he means that there's no condemnation if we're in Christ Jesus, because he wants them to be on the same page with him. Now, why does that matter? Because this church is full of Greeks, non-Jews, and Jews. 
Imagine the Hatfields and McCoys being in the same church together. That, that's what you have. Two factions of people who would normally hate each other but have been transformed by Jesus are now in the same church. And yet if you're not careful, those same, uh, that same division can arise. And Paul wants to make sure that there's unity within the church because there's something greater than your desire. It's the glory of God. And so in light of that, Paul knows the power of Satan to split the church. He knows that it's easy to look upon others and to judge them, and he wants us to see that there is a judge, but it's not you and I. There's a final judge that we must live in light of, and and to see how we can, can live in light of the judgment of God, Paul gives us three commands that are really three guides to live in light of Jesus' judgment. So let's look at these. The first is welcome the weak. We are to welcome the weak. Paul wants us to be a people who love one another. We saw that in chapter 13. Look at chapter 13, verse 8. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He's saying that that's what should characterize followers of Jesus Christ. But then he gives us a reason. Look at chapter 13, verse 12. He says that the night is far gone. The day is at at hand. This is the, the day of Jesus. He is returning. He could come back at any moment. We have no idea when. And so we need to live in light of that day. It's a day that should give us a new perspective on life. You know, if, we, if you know death is coming, it, it kind of gives you perspective on life, right? And Paul's saying that that should change us and it should change our mentality of how we think about one another. How so? Well, look at verse 1. He calls us to welcome the weak. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. So Paul's going to show us two people. He's going to show us those who are weak, and he's going to show us those who are strong. The weak, he's going to show us, are the people who believe in Jesus, but think that the way to honor Jesus is by adding all sorts of holidays to celebrate or are to eat a certain way in order to honor Jesus. We see that in verse 5, right? One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. He also mentions about the way in which we eat. In verse 6, that the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. The one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord. And so these, these weak people are actually the Jewish people who believe in Jesus, but they have a hard time releasing the Old Testament commandments uh, on what to eat and not to eat, and what days to celebrate and what days not to celebrate. Their conscience is constrained or restricted. And the Gentiles, the the non-Jews, are kind of like, I can eat anything. I can go and eat a bacon cheeseburger. It's okay. And you get those two together, you start to see fireworks happen. And what does Paul tell the the strong to do? In verse 1, he says, to welcome him. Now think about it for a moment. If you have a freedom to do something what are you going to do? You're going to engage that freedom. 
So maybe you feel free in your conscience to drink alcohol. Maybe you feel free in your conscience to dance, or you feel free in your conscience to smoke a cigar. And if someone else comes to you and starts to proclaim that that is wrong, what are you going to do? You're immediately going to fight back. You're going to kind of get angry and start to show why it's okay that you do these things. And they have no right to tell you what to do. Paul says, don't do that. Because notice what he said at the end of verse 1. He says, welcome them. Don't welcome them to sit them down and tell them how they're wrong and they just need to be like you. No, welcome them. Not to quarrel over opinions. You see, we're going to see in a couple weeks that there are layers to our faith in Jesus Christ. That there is a central... uh, first layer that we all must agree upon Jesus as being the center, upon him being God in the flesh, him living a sinless life and dying for our sin and rising from the dead, and only by faith in him do we have eternal life. We have to believe that. But there are secondary and third level issues that that we might disagree and we might start different churches on those disagreements, but that doesn't mean that we don't love one another in light of the reality of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying don't quarrel over these opinions, but rather look at at what he says in verse 2. He says, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person only eats anything. Vegetables, as much as I would love to call everybody who likes vegetables weak, that's not Paul's point, right? His point is, is that, hey, you, one person eats one thing, another person eats another. It doesn't matter. That's not something to divide on. Look at verse 3. He goes further. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. What's he doing? You know, so often the trouble in our life is that we, we think about ways in which we should live our lives and we begin to order our life according to our thinking. And if we really are convinced, we start to push it on other people. We start to really push that they should live the way we live. Now, I'm not, I'm not making an indictment on anybody. I'm just going to give some examples. Okay? Maybe you've been around someone who's been on a new diet. They talk about it a lot, don't they? Eventually they talk about it so much that if you're not on the diet, you're not as good as them. Or maybe there's a push of different products like 31 or LuLaRoe or Norwex. Or, or maybe there's a push for homeschooling. You know, if, you're, if you don't homeschool your kids, then what are you doing? These are modern-day methods where we start to feel superior because we have bought into a way of thinking or we've bought into a way of, of living and we begin to push people down because they don't live like us. But why do we do that? Because the moment people don't live like us is the moment we begin to realize we've not gained the acceptance from them that we desire. You see, you and I were created for glory. The problem is we weren't created for our glory. We were created for the glory of God. And when someone does not accept our way of living or accept our new thought pattern, 
we begin to push back because we are longing for this glory and we're longing for the wrong glory. In fact, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27 tells us that as God created the world, that at the pinnacle of creation, He created human beings to be in the image and to be in the likeness of man. We're to represent God and to be about God's glory, not ours, not pushing our views as better than others. And so we might have opinions on politics or, or on music or on movies, but we must not use those as weapons to despise one another. The world is giving you and I enough reasons to hate one another. We don't need to add to them. Because notice what Paul says at the end of verse 3, why we do this. Because God has welcomed them. You remember what we heard last week, if you were here? In Mark 1, verses 35 to 45, we saw the story of the leper who was the outcast from society, who uh, everybody just kind of pushed out, no longer interacted with, the kind of person that whenever he walked around had to yell out, unclean, unclean, so that everyone would scatter away from him. And in that moment, Jesus comes and he does the unthinkable. He not only interacts, but he touches the man and he cleanses the man. And in that moment, we see Jesus' love for the weak, Jesus' love for the outcast. And Paul is saying that's the kind of love that is offered to you and I. That we, what do we have to offer? We have our sin. We have our rebellion. I mean, you have to know that life is not the way you thought it would be. And part of that is our own decisions and our own actions that deserve punishment and consequence from God. And yet in the middle of that, God sent Jesus. <coughs> he sent Jesus to come and die for that sin. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So you and I might be invited into the family of God. We who were weak can now be brought into the family of God because he who was strong became weak in our place. And he welcomed us. And church, this should renew our minds. It should uh, transform our lives. It's not enough for us to just believe mentally these things are true. James tells us in chapter 2, verse 19, that even the demons believe in God, and they shudder. We have to have more than just a mental belief in Jesus, but rather a heart transformation that sees that Jesus is greater, and as a result of his sacrifice for us, we begin to live differently. We don't add legal requirements to our lives, but rather we live our life in light of the Lord. We begin to honor God in all things. And that should change the way we interact with one another. Look at verse 4. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? You know, you and I serve something. We all serve something. According to Romans 6, there's only two categories. We either are serving God or we're serving ourselves, which is sinfulness. 
And it's when we come to faith in Jesus that we are, we are taken out of the realm of sinfulness and self-serving to the realm of serving our Savior. But what that means is that the person next to you is not your servant. The person next to you is not here to give you honor or to make you king, but rather they are actually designed to bring honor and to declare how God is king. And they don't stand before you to give an account. Look at what he says in verse 4. It is before his own master that he stands or falls. He doesn't stand before you. I don't stand before you. Stand before the Lord. And he'll be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. You and I have no power, ultimately, on that final judgment day, no power over one another. And so we need to make sure that we're not doing God's job, but rather we're doing the work that God has set out for us to do. And so we need to be a people who are welcoming the weak. What does that look like? How do you talk about people? When you look at people on your streets or people in your job or people in your family, what is the tone of voice that you use to them or about them? Is it an honoring tone? Are the words honoring to them? Or is it more about you. Church, we need to be a people who are focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ, who are loving Jesus, lifting high the name of Jesus. That means we got to be a people before and after the service who are talking with one another about Jesus, encouraging one another about what God is doing in our lives, and that as we go about our lives, people know more about our love for Jesus than anything else. Church, do people know more about your choice for God or your choice for governor? If someone were to walk up to you this week, would they know more about who you voted for senator or would they know more about your submission to the Savior? They only know that based on what you talk about based on what you treasure. And so we need to treasure Jesus Christ. And we do that by asking him to change us. We do that by uh, spending time with Jesus to just get to know him, to enjoy him, and to ask others to, to pray for us and to help, that they might help us to grow and to know more of Jesus. And the only way that we can actually welcome the weak is if we do what Paul shows us next. And that is we live for the Lord. Look at verse 5. He calls us to live for the Lord. Look at verse 5. He says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. So the Jews, if you read the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, they would have all of these festivals and and celebrations that they were to use for the glory of God. But now that Jesus Christ has come, those are wiped away and they're fulfilled in Christ. And now we celebrate Christ and we celebrate his death and his resurrection and his 
birth at Christmas. And so what that should do is that should reformat our minds to no longer look at people based on the celebrations they have or don't have so long as they're honoring the Lord. So let me use an example. Hopefully this doesn't break down. I was going to test it before, but I think it works. So if you don't know, Puerto Rico is part of the United States of America. Okay? But my guess is they are not celebrating July 4th or Memorial Day or Veterans Day the same way we do. So if you walk in our community and you see a Puerto Rican on July 4th and they're not celebrating and excited about July 4th the way we are, we cannot look down upon them as if they are a second-rate citizen because how dare you not celebrate this holiday like we do. I know that's kind of a dumb idea, but how much more so in the church of God? Do we elevate certain celebrations over others? Instead, what Paul tells us to do, what does he say? Each one, verse 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Hold your own conviction, but don't treat others as less human because they don't hold your same conviction on second or third layer issues. Why? Look at verse 6. He says, the one observes the day observes in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. He's saying no matter what you do, everything you do should be in honor of the Lord. That your thought process should not be, can I do this? Or do I want to do this? Or is this going to be fun? Those are wrong questions. Rather, we should think about our life and say, will this honor God? Does this glorify God? Does it bring joy to Him? And does it bring us joy as a result of honoring Him? Because you see the theme there. He says, everything is to be done for the Lord. Then he gives us a foundation in verse 7. He says, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. Everything you do, if you're a follower of Jesus, everything you do should be for the glory of God. You know, if you've ever read through the Psalms, they're very encouraging, especially on dark days. And yet, regularly throughout the Psalms, they're pointing us back to the name and the sake of the Lord. Even the famous Psalm, Psalm 23 We read there that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? Because we're awesome? Why? Because he is just thinking up there, how do I serve them? No. It's for my name's sake. He does all of that for us so that he would get the glory, so that he would get the praise from our lives. And this word for, at the beginning of verse 7, is the grounding or the reason to what Paul has already said and what Paul is going to say. And so whether you celebrate or not, whether you eat or not, it should all be done for the Lord. 
Why? Look at verse 8. He says, for, we are, uh, for if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we, our, uh, we are the Lord's. Our entire life is about God. And that frees you up to not have to uh, grasp for glory here, not to have to grasp for meaning here. We're going we're gonna to look at Ecclesiastes in the spring, and it's going to be wonderful. Chapter 1 says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, meaning everything in life is meaningless without God. But the moment God infuses our life is the moment that black and white picture is infused with color. Some of you have experienced that gospel change that when Jesus came into your life, you began to see things differently. You began to have a hope. You might still struggle, but you struggle differently because you have a hope that is grounded in Jesus Christ. And Paul says that we are to live because we are the Lord's. I think about a, a, a military figure, you know, a soldier. The moment you enter the military is the moment you kind of lay down your rights to, to live where you want, to maybe eat where you want, especially if you're on the battlefield. You don't get to be like, hey, uh, it's 5 o'clock. Uh, it's time for my Chick-fil-A right now, so I'm going to check out and go get that. Right? You don't do that. You can't. You're at the beck and call of the, the commander. The commander wants you to keep going. You go. If the commander wants you to eat a certain food, you eat. If he wants you to sleep a certain place, you sleep. You are at their beck and call. And yet when you do that, you bring them honor. And when you bring them honor, you actually get joy. How does that work? Well, think about, think about a dad and his daughter on their wedding day. If you think about that moment, the dad has his arm around it, you know, their arms are interlocked, and they're starting to walk down that aisle. And in that moment, what happens? All eyes are turned on who? On the girl. Dad, if you've got a girl, like, they're not looking at you. They don't really care about you. You just happen to be the one making sure she doesn't fall down, right? It's not about you. All eyes are on her. She is getting the honor in that moment. But guess how you're feeling as a dad? You're excited, aren't you? You're excited. You get to be a part of this wonderful day in which she is going to marry this groom and she's going to start a brand new life together. And yet she's getting the honor. But you're getting joy. How much more so the reality that we will someday be married forever to Christ. And as he gets the honor as the groom, we get the joy that we are united forever with Christ. And so we get to live now in light of that day, submitting every day to Jesus Christ. Because look at what Paul says in verse 9. He says, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So Christ died and he lived, and to what end? So those who are still living might honor Christ, those who have died might honor Christ because he's the only one to conquer death. And as he's conquered death and now living once again, 
those who have eternal life will also give him glory and declare that he is Lord. Church, there's not a single place or a single state in the entire creative order where you can go and not be under the lordship of Christ. The question is not where can I go outside of the lordship of Christ, but rather am I living as if Christ is Lord? You see, one is a truth, and one is an enjoyment of that truth. And so the way in which we welcome the weak is that we live for the Lord, that we recognize this truth that Jesus is worthy of our entire lives, and we stop judging one another on lesser issues. And we start focusing on Christ. Well, how do we do that? Well, let me ask you, are you living for your honor or for God's? When bad things happen, is your first reaction the, about how God will get honor? Or is your first reaction about how this is not fair and you don't deserve it? See, that's a heart of judgment. That's a heart and a mind that is directed on what we want and not what on God wants. And in that moment, what we need to do is reintroduce God into the scene. And we do that by practicing the discipline of prayer. Just in that moment, just recognize, I don't care that you are disobeying or rebelling against God or dishonoring God. I care more that you're dishonoring me. And so we immediately go to prayer. Ask the Lord to change our hearts in that moment. Ask him that his spirit would guide, his spirit would direct us, and that his spirit would push us back to the word of God. That we'd be a people who know the word of God and are shaped by the word of God. And that this word would actually change the way in which we live, that we would let it seep into us so much that it would change the way in which we live our lives. But I wonder if part of the reason why we're not transformed and, and able to live for the Lord, resulting in us welcoming the weak, is because we're too distracted. I think I've told this story before. Years ago, uh, my wife and I had made a commitment that for 40 days we were not going to watch sports. She didn't really care about that. I wasn't going to watch sports. We weren't going to watch TV. I was going to limit my internet use. And I remember sitting on my couch. It was 8 o'clock at night and just laying there. All the festivities of the day, it was a Sunday, all the festivities were done. And we were just laying there waiting for bedtime. And I remember laying there for what seemed like an eternity until I looked at the clock, and it was 8.15. Why? Because I had grown so much. I would grown used to being engaged in something constantly that when I had 15 minutes of silence and solitude before the Lord, I did not know how to handle that. And my heart began to race and my body began to pulse and I began to feel like hours had passed when reality is a few minutes. Church, do you have time where you're not distracted? Might your love for the Lord 
lessen because your distractions are increasing. May we be a people who joyfully lay down those distractions because we see Jesus as a treasure and we enter into that unknown space where we're just before the Lord. And guess what? In that quiet space, I'm reminded of, of Elijah who is complaining about how he's the only one left. And all of a sudden, the the Lord shows up, and he shows up in this massive tornado, in all of this hallowing. And you'd think God would speak in that moment. And it wasn't until everything was still and quiet that the Lord spoke. Church, may we be a people who are still and quiet before the Lord so that he might speak to us so that our minds and hearts would be reoriented to love one another. And we do that because we need to realize that someday in the future we will stand before the Savior. Each one of us, in the end, will give an account for our life before Jesus Christ. So we welcome the week because the only way we can do that is because we live for the Lord and we live for the Lord because we know that there is a final judgment coming and we have to give an account. Look at verse 10. Paul continues, he says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother. Like, why do you look down upon others? Why are you walking around thinking, I'm so much better, I never had to deal with that? If you just made better decisions, if you just handled your money better, if you just worked harder, whatever statement that you're using, he says, why? Because the reality is, someday, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We will all give an account for our deeds. Do you know that, church? Even if you're in Jesus Christ, your eternal rewards will be dictated upon the actions that you have had here and now. So we must give an account. I don't stand before the Lord to give your account. You don't stand before the Lord to give my account. We stand before the Lord to give our account. And so why are we wasting time judging one another? Why are we wasting time trying to prove how superior we are when we will all stand before the Lord and the playing field will be leveled? We will all fall down realizing The only thing we have to plead in that moment is Jesus Christ. And to prove his point, Paul quotes from Isaiah 45 that Becca read earlier. The context there is that God has come to his people, the nation of Israel, and he says, I'm going to restore you. And in light of the restoration, the nations are going to come. And notice what the peoples or the nations are going to do. Verse 11, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. That when Christ comes to restore, it doesn't matter who you are, whether you believe or not, 
Paul tells us in Philippians 2, it doesn't matter whether you're on earth or you're in heaven or you're in hell. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why not do so now? Why not orient your mind and your heart to do so now, that your knee would bow joyfully now to God and your tongue would joyfully confess that Jesus is Lord and then plead with him that that statement is not a mere statement but a reality in your life. You know, there's a way in which we can profess and our lives can be completely opposite of our profession. May we plead with the Lord that what we profess actually becomes a reality in our lives, because notice how Paul ends in verse 12. He says, then each of us will give an account of himself to God. None of us get out of this. We can't act like we're better than others. Christ is the one who judges. And so we need to be a people who are humble under the hand of God, that we realize that he is in charge, not us, that we trust him, And we realize that we are the servants, we are the farmer with a massive debt who the president, God himself, has come and has wiped the debt clean in Jesus Christ, who has granted forgiveness, who has granted life, and that should lead to our joy. And it should lead to us looking at one another like God sees one another, sinners in need of a Savior. Not ploys to prove my worth, but rather people to love and point back to the hope of Jesus Christ. So we might disagree on politics. We might disagree on movies. We definitely disagree on sports teams. We might disagree on a whole slew of things. But within the church of God, People who are submitted to the Lordship of Christ ought to agree that Jesus Christ should be central and should be primary in everything that we do in our day-to-day life. Church, may we be a people who realize that God is the only judge and that we would live for Him and not for our own desires.